You're listening to Trial by Media, a behind-the-scenes true crime podcast. We'll lift the lid on crime and how it's covered, bringing you the biggest cases from Britain's courts. You've read the coverage, here's the full story. You'll be hearing from Charlie Jones, Sophia Daru, and Cameron Charters. I'm your host for this episode, Carolina Haranskar. If you like what you hear and want us to make more episodes, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Johnny Depp lost his libel case against the Sun newspaper at the start of November. The case was brought to the High Court by the Hollywood megastar after an article published by The Sun called him a wife-beater. Dismissing the actor's lawsuit, the judge said The Sun had proved what was in the article to be substantially true. Okay, so Charlie, before we get into this, let's unpick this a little. Why was Johnny Depp suing The Sun? Because they called him a wife-beater, which is clearly libelous. So, um... For context, in 2018, Dan Wooten, who is The Sun's executive editor, he wrote an article about the decision to cast Depp as the big baddie Grindelwald in the latest Harry Potter franchise. Now, in this time, the Me Too movement had only been around for about a year at this point, so there was a lot of reckoning about who we look up to, you know, questioning whether there should be more accountability. And there were these two actors, Caitlin Delaney and Catherine Kendall, who were both Harvey Weinstein's victims. They criticised the decision. Witten then used his uh, column questioning J.K. Rowling's hiring of a so-called wife-beater when she claims to care about women's rights. He said there was overwhelming evidence to show that he was engaged in domestic violence and that Amber Heard feared for her life. He mentions in the article there were kicks and punches and shoves and an all-out assault. And then he went on to say that if Rowling cared about women's rights like she says she does, she wouldn't stand by this casting. So this was clearly libelous and Depp decided to sue, which almost never happens. Suing the media is the riskiest thing you can do because they're going to love every day. I mean, you know, they'll be shit scared because it's not like they're made of money anymore, but they'll also sell millions of papers in the process and on the back of it so you know i think depp must have been desperate it was it was a gamble essentially to save his reputation so what was the actual headline of the article it was um gone potty how can jk rowling be genuinely happy casting wife beater johnny depp in the new fantastic beasts film so depp was challenging the claim that he assaulted ex-wife amber heard It was about saving a reputation, what's known as libel. So what exactly is libel? So a libelous statement is basically anything that's published that causes harm to your reputation. Uh, There's a posh legal form, which is uh, a statement which lowers the individual in the estimation of right-thinking members of society generally. But yeah, basically throwing shade at your reputation. I mean, there's lots of forms of it, but when it directly harms your income, so like advocating a recasting, that's the most obvious form to sue over. And doing it because you're a wife beater, I mean, that's the gold dust of a libel case, one would think. The Sun essentially had to prove that what they had published, i.e. that, you know, Johnny Depp uh, was a wife beater, what they alleged in the article, was substantially true. So how did The Sun go about doing that? What's their defence? Yeah, so it's important, I think, to state at this point that neither Johnny Depp nor Amber Heard were on trial. You know, these aren't criminal proceedings. It was never about whether or not Johnny Depp committed a criminal act. Because if it was, then Johnny Depp's general defence, which was essentially she was as bad or if not worse than me, would have been a perfectly reasonable defence. But it wasn't. The bar to prove the allegation was much lower. Because in a criminal trial, you have to convince 12 strangers that, you know, you're sure 
he did it unlawfully, so without an excuse, not in self-defence. Here, it's just about convincing one judge to think that he probably did it on the balance of probabilities, and to be honest, the context doesn't really matter. You know, they didn't have to prove that Depp was the worst party in the relationship. It was about whether he could be factually be called a wife beater. Uh, you know, there's no mitigation. So all Whitten and the son had to do is show that Johnny Depp, on at least one occasion, beat his wife. So they provided evidence of 14 occasions where they say he did, and the judge believed 12 of them. One of those was, um, I, I think I remember seeing a video of something about a severed finger. Talk to me a little bit about the nature of the allegations that they threw out each other. Christ, um, quite a number of fun claims thrown around. Some of them more memorable ones. Uh, so he accused her of pooing on her bed. Uh, she said it was the dog who was sick from eating his weed. Uh, the cleaner gave evidence that it looked human. Um, she was apparently nicknamed Amber Turd off the back of this. She accused him of wanting to microwave their dog and hanging it out the car window. He denied it. Uh, he accused her of slicing his finger off uh, and said, and she said that he did it to himself. But either way, he did write messages on the wall to her using her blood. She accused him of uh, using a tampon accessory to do cocaine with her sister. Uh, he accused her of being violent and he used a video where her sister was on a reality show and talking to her friends and saying, saying that Amber had been violent. He used that as evidence. Uh, she said that she was once violent because he once threw Kate Moss down the stairs and she thought he wanted to do it to her sister. Uh, he said that she was a gold digger. She said, I'm quite successful, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, all very grown up, well-mannered. Yeah. So what's next for Johnny Depp? You know, seeing as he's lost the case, can newspapers now call him a wife beater? Yeah, yeah. We can call Johnny Depp the Oscar-nominated the once highest paid actor in Hollywood, a wife beater. So the, the judge, Justice Nickel, uh, he held that the meaning of Wooten's words, that he beat her, uh, causing her to suffer significant injury and on occasion leading her to fear for her life, that's true. So you can call him a wife beater without putting a legend in front or anything like that. So in terms of what's next, you've got JK Rowling. And that's a woman who has spent you know, years on Twitter arguing against sort of trans-inclusive policies on the basis that she's somehow protecting cis women and you know, using her own genuinely horrific experience of, of domestic violence to justify her point. She's now cast an official wife beater in her film, so obviously he had to go. He's got a film coming out in February, so we'll see what happens with that. And, I mean, who knows, you do have Roman Polanski who's still working, but Johnny Depp's, you know, he's a family film guy. He's, he's Disney, he's Harry Potter. There's there's lots of committees deciding with these films where's the best place, who's the best person to invest these millions and millions and millions, and you know, he's not a safe bet anymore, and, and that'll win out. He, I think he has to win an appeal, or it's really over for him. But I definitely wouldn't say Amber Heard has won. You know, I mean, the judge hit back against accusations that she was a gold digger because using the fact that she donated this uh, seven million dollars that she won from him in the divorce to charity, and you know, while he wasn't there to rule on her conduct, the public were. You know, she was booed on the way in and out pretty much every day by his fans, and so you know, if people are avoiding hiring Depp because it's financially safer not to, which I think is the case, I think the same is going to be true for Amber. You know, if a sizable chunk of people hate you for being allegedly abusive and, and think you're a liar, then, I mean, no matter what Justice Nickel says, they're not going to come and see the film. Lastly, I want to ask, so the actor took to Instagram 
after this whole thing to confirm that he intended to appeal and that his career will not be defined by it. So what did he say? Yeah, he, he essentially said that the judgment was surreal and he said he would appeal it. Also, he said that he'd been sacked by Fantastic Beasts, which, as I say, isn't surprising or wasn't surprising. You can see why you know, it's his own appealing is his only chance of working again. He's also suing Amber Heard in the US for an article she wrote in the Washington Post accusing him of violence, in which she will use this judgment as pretty convincing evidence to support her case. Um, but I honestly, I doubt the Sun are quaking about the appeal. You know, it might be one last chance for Depp, but it also means another month-long drama to keep our flailing press alive. So, happy Hunger Games. A sexual assault allegation surrounding the former Blue Peter presenter John Leslie brought him to the dock of Southwark Crown Court, where he stood trial. He was in fact cleared after a jury returned a not guilty verdict, but that did not rid him, much to his despair, from the media scrutiny he claimed ruined his career. The allegation is that in December 2008, during a party in central London, John Leslie grabbed a woman's breasts with both hands, squeezed them, and then wordlessly walked away after laughing. That is the heart of the case. So what did Leslie tell the jury? What was his defence? Well, his defence can be summarised with it never happened, I didn't do it, which is very typical for a sexual assault case, but it went deeper than that. He argued that he had already been through trial by media. In the early noughties, uh, presenter Ulrika Johnson published an autobiography in which she claimed that a TV presenter had raped her when she was just 19. Johnson and Leslie had briefly dated in the mid-80s, and um, after the book came out, where everybody was speculating as to what the identity of the presenter was, Matthew Wright just decided to say live on air that it was John Leslie. Now, the allegations with Johnson never went anywhere legally, but then two women came forward with um, uh, accusing John Leslie of, of indecent assault. So, essentially, Leslie's reputation before trial had already been called into question. Exactly. Well, he argued that his reputation, not only his career, but his reputation was absolutely destroyed. He said that the tabloids painted him as public enemy number one, which debatable for the early noughties. But he also said that they painted him as some kind of sexual monster. Now, not only did the tabloids run those stories, which is their right, they actually generated them by essentially having an open casting call for women to come forward with their own allegation, rewarding them money. So this will have the effect of drawing forward people who just want the money or the attention or just your regular old fantasies. And this absolutely undermines genuine victims when they come forward. So he argued that his reputation had been so destroyed that he rarely went outside, rarely interacted with people he didn't know. He was aware that his every behavior was under the microscope, that he felt very self-conscious of any interaction he had with a woman he didn't know. He said that people saw him as some kind of sexual monster and he would never risk being involved in another investigation, another trial. At the end of the day, the jury seems to have believed him, or at the very least, the jury could not 
be absolutely certain that the actual assault happened. Okay. Well, television personalities like Anthea Turner, Diane Louise Jordan, uh, Fern Britton, they supported their former colleagues. So they actually came to court and gave evidence. What did they say? They said that he was that they don't come better than John Leslie, that he was an absolute gentleman. They portrayed him as an almost enthusiastic, childlike person who just is everybody's big brother and gets along with everyone. Now, the problem is, it is absolutely a defendant's right to have character evidence, but in this case, all of the character evidence came from celebrities. Now, the the judge did direct the jury to treat it as any kind of evidence, but you can't argue that when you have Anthea Turner in court turning up her TV persona to 11, that's not gonna influence the jury. We have to remember sometimes as court reporters that for a lot of jurors, this is their first time in court and whatever ideas they might have about the justice system come from very often highly inaccurate media depictions. So for me, Anthea Turner is particular, the whole having her presentary voice came off as quite off-putting and fake, but a juror might feel a different way. Also, I didn't grow up in this country. I didn't really know who those people are. So I don't know if a presenter from my childhood came forward, if it would be a different story. But they were quite, uh, they were treated differently, certainly by court staff. I mean, in, um, in the COVID times, you need to keep social distancing in the public gallery to observe a trial. And the court ushers are quite strict about enforcing it. Well, they those ladies just rocked up in court, specifically Turner and um, Diane... Louise Jordan. Yes. They just rocked up to court without a mask on, sat wherever they wanted in the public gallery, and just spent the whole hearing uh, glaring at journalists. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Um, so... I do have a question, and this is specific to sexual assault cases. Okay, more often than not, you see a male defendant uh, with uh, being represented by a female barrister. So do you think that that plays a subconscious influence in determining a jury's decision? I think that it's very telling that in most sexual assault or rape cases I have been in, it tends to be a female barrister defending. And I think the reason for that is just the optics. It just doesn't look very good when a probably older male barrister is just absolutely giving the victim a horrible time, the alleged victim, I should say. During cross-examination. During cross-examination. It just doesn't look good. I mean, and just with the... uh, With female barristers, they can get away with, I'll just say it, straight-up bullying witnesses. So, okay, for these types of cases that don't have a lot of CCTV evidence, how does the prosecuting barrister convince the jury that what they allege happened, in fact, did happen? Well, unfortunately, it comes down to he said, she said. The issue is because most most sexual assaults or rapes do not involve a stranger in the bushes scenario. It's just usually nobody has seen anything And there is no physical proof because sometimes victims might not come forward for years. And there is also an issue um, that the victim also gets put under the microscope. So the the CPS go through their phones, their private conversations, their emails. I was recently in another trial where a victim's counseling notes were read out out loud. 
you have to remember a jury finding a not guilty verdict is not the same as an innocent verdict but if you're going to convict someone you have to be absolutely certain they have done it so i've been in three high profile sexual assault cases recently one of them resulted in a conviction and that involved an almost dickensian level villain defendant that was charlie elphick okay those were two uh, so those were two separate sexual assault allegations involving two women no, actually, I think it was three. Yeah, no, it was two women, but there were three, three alleged occurrences. Well, not yeah. alleged, but there were three, and three I think times it happened. That strengthened the case, obviously, because he said, she said, she said. And also, um, it was very much what she was saying was, was the mirror image of what the other woman was saying. They were both they were both describing his personality in exactly the same way, saying that he had giggling and was saying they're be- he's being naughty and all the- these sort of very specific, very details. sort of odd details that came up. It was it, it rang true a lot, I think, was a big part of it. Yeah, they all they both held up each other's accounts. Yeah. And that was the one where they had a, a male defender, didn't they? A male barrister. A male barrister defending him, yeah. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't look good, did it? It didn't look good when he was cross examining the women. It was not pleasant. Absolutely not. And I think to be fair, the behaviour described is just um well, both appalling and like something like out of a Benny Hill sketch. So you could absolutely believe that somebody as entitled as that would believe he can get away with this. And it's an interesting question as to how much of this determines a guilty verdict or not. But the jury in that were mainly nine out of 11 were women and they were predominantly just from outside appearances looked under 30 mm-hmm. for most of them um, and so a lot of what the witnesses were saying you know why didn't you come forward and you know, because he's a very powerful man and he can impact my life and all of the, all of that stuff was ring you could tell would ring a much more true to women who have maybe been in that position before than if it was 11 men who might hold more store by those questions from from what i saw uh, another interesting aspect involving um women in the story was that his uh, wife natalie was supporting him throughout the trial and then on and the we should day- also just point out that his wife replaced him as an MP when he was uh, yes. when he resigned his seat in the December 2019 election she took over and was supporting him throughout the trial but the moment the jury came back with guilty verdicts she just basically stormed out of court face like thunder and then released a statement that something along the lines after you know the uh after the verdict basically that they were separating but it's interesting so she's a lawyer used to be a lawyer but and he's her husband he she knows him but she had to wait for a jury to decide whether he committed the sexual assault I'm not saying and anything, I'm just asking questions. Yeah, so she divorced him, as, or she announced they were separating as soon as the guilty verdict came in, mm-hmm. but is now backing his appeal. Yeah, definitely a little bit bizarre. Back on to the sexual assault cases, uh, we've done Leslie, who was cleared, Elphick, who was jailed, and Sophia, you said you did a third one. Well, the third one is another member of parliament, this time from the House of Lords, it's uh, Christopher Holmes. He is a Paralympian and he's uh, been legally blind since he's, he's a child. And the allegation was from a masseuse in a five-star London hotel who said that while she was giving him a deep tissue massage, the peer allegedly grabbed the masseuse's bottom and then pointed at his crotch and asked if she did extras. So I should say that he has been cleared of uh, all allegations. 
So what was his defense? So his defense was basically, which the jury believed, was he denied ever touching her butt. But his defense was that he asked her if he could see her and then ran, sort of ran his hands over her face and then down her sides. I believe his words were traced her silhouette. The implication was basically that he did that and she got paranoid, defensive, and just sort of embellished the story. And his barrister, again, a female barrister, went through, during cross-examination, went through the alleged victim's um, WhatsApp arguments with her boyfriend. She went through her counseling notes. She basically put her life under a microscope and tried to paint her, successfully, you would argue, as an overdramatic woman. Also, he painted a very eloquent picture of just trying to imagine what it's like to live in a world where you can't see, which I personally found moving regardless of the context in which it was used. Also, it was the optics. So he came every day into court with his lovely service dog, a Labrador called Nancy. Nancy went into the dock with him, obviously, and then well, his barrister said, if you hear any sounds, it's not Lord Holmes huffing and puffing, it's Nancy with him in the dog. And then when she was going through his history and accomplishments, she even said like, oh, this, how, is Nancy always such a good girl? I think with sexual assault cases, um, in the lack of any kind of third party evidence, it's just a question which side is going to make a more believable story that the jury likes. That's it. That's it. There is literally no other element determining how they're going to go. Meghan Markle is suing Associated Newspapers, publisher of the Mail on Sunday and Mail Online, over an alleged privacy breach after bits of her handwritten letter she sent to her estranged father were published by the Mail on Sunday for us all to have a read. She claims the letter was indeed never for public consumption, and on top of that, a breach of copyright. So Cameron, you covered this case. What does Meghan Markle claim? What's her case about? Yes, well, Meghan Markle is suing Associated Newspapers, which publishes both the Mail on Sunday and the Mail Online, as well as the Daily Mail. In the Mail Online, and the, but primarily the Mail on Sunday, Caroline Graham, who works for that paper for the West Coast of America, in um, August 2018, published extracts of a letter sent to Thomas Markle, who's Meghan Markle's father. And this letter was written directly to him but the mail on mail on sunday sorry managed to form an agreement with um mr markle to run some of the letters or extracts of the letters megan markle claims that this is a um firstly breach of her privacy or misuse of private information she also claims it's a breach of copyright and under the, the, the data protection act yeah so this whole case centers around copyright and privacy what does that mean? Well, in terms of copyright, it's, it's it's who has the right and ownership over the letter, and it's quite intricate on this one because the letter was undoubtedly written by Meghan Markle, but was sent to her father. So it's whether or not, it's, I suppose, in the act of sending the letter to the father, has Meghan Markle relinquished her claim of ownership to the letter, and is it for Meghan, Mar Meghan Markle's father to do with this as he pleases upon receipt? Um, now, in terms of privacy, well, she feels that the information in there was private to her and her father and her views, and these have been misused in, the, in that they have been made public, uh, and public in a very obvious way, in that they were published in the, on, in the Mail on Sunday, which has a uh, 
mass circulation. So, so where are we at with this case? What's the latest on it? Well, really, there's a lot of uh, turning and throwing, as just to be expected. Uh, Lord Justice Wardy is presiding over it um, at the High Court, which is sort of based in central London. Uh, he's um, recently announced that the case is going to be adjourned until uh, following autumn, largely because of a private hearing in which members of the press were excluded, so the details of which I don't know, but there was felt to be grounds that the case could not be heard as it was expected to be, which is to be... Uh, in the new year. I suppose recently of, of interest is that the Mail on Sunday are going to be allowed to admit extracts of the recent biography of Meghan Markle and uh, Prince Harry, who she of course married, uh, called, and the biography is called Finding Freedom. Now this was um, written by two reporters or journalists called Omid Scobie and Caroline Jorand. The Mail on Sunday have claimed that this biography is evidence that Meghan Markle is quite prepared to put herself uh, into the public eye. The arguments being put forward by the Mail on Sunday is that by her own account Meghan Markle is a successful um, actress, uh, businesswoman and what could be seen to be a public figure. This is very much what the newspaper is arguing. So is the argument that her right to privacy is somewhat less applicable because she's a celebrity? Well, I don't think the Mail on Sunday would go quite as far as saying that points of privacy don't apply to her in any sense. They will be arguing that, on balance, this is a this is a, a woman who has shown herself to be quite happy to be cast in a certain light in the public, and therefore the Mail on Sunday also have a have a right to to cast her in their own light upon a seat of information which they deem to be credible and newsworthy. So that's really the latest on that. Um, now, in terms of when the trial will actually be fixed, well, these things are very much uh, moving fixtures, so it's a little difficult to pin it down, but autumn of next year is what is being um, mentioned at the moment. I've always wondered, this is a slightly tangential topic, but why do judges reserve judgments? Well, in, in cases such as this, where there'll be a lot of witnesses and there'll be an awful lot of evidence, they may, first of all, and this is just a human point, and it's not really meant to be irreverent, but they may simply not be able to recall all of it in the moment of passing judgments if they were to do it on that day. They might like time to think about it. They might want to consider all the evidence and reflect upon what they've heard. I mean, these cases go on for weeks, if not months, and to at least give the appearance of having considered it quite seriously, but I think also because they their capacity for passing an instant judgment may not be as high as you you might anticipate. Okay, and the burning question, which I think I probably should ask you, who do you think will win and when are we likely to find out the result? Well, um, taking the the last question first, um, these matters are often reserved by the uh, presiding justice, as was uh, the case in the recent liable dispute between Johnny Depp and the Sun. Uh, judgment is reserved until until a days where the where the justice is happy uh, for the judgment to be made public, and then tackling the this, the more difficult question of who do I think will win. I think it's from the point of view of a newspaper man, I would want the Mail on Sunday to win, <laughs> uh, but objectively, it's it's a close call, and I, I do think the Mail on Sunday will edge it just about. But I, I think it will be very hotly contested. In September, at the Old Bailey, the extradition hearings of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange began to unfold. He was indicted by the US on spying charges and hacking into computer systems to publish US military databases. 
the material covered the Afghan and Iraq wars, Guantanamo Bay, and other communications between states. Protesters rallied outside the court while witnesses stood under oath and gave evidence inside. All the while, us journalists were watching closely at the whole thing unfold. Charlie, you covered this case pretty much from start to where we are now. What was it like getting into the room, especially now under COVID? So getting into the room was quite difficult, actually, because it was the first major trial that I had done under COVID restrictions, um, which meant so there was, you know, all these news organisations were interested because he's Australian, so you've got the Australian press interested, the crimes in America, so you've got their press, obviously. You know, all of these journalists from around the world really trying to get in. And it was going to be a massive bum fight to get in the court, but then COVID happened, and so they worked out a way for most journalists to be able to listen in at home. So only six of us ended up coming in every day to try and get in the courtroom, and we were actually put next door, um, and we watched it all on video link. But and that was all fine, and it worked sort of well. What we couldn't get when Julian Assange would stand up and do these big dramatic outbursts during the case, and so and we just didn't, we just couldn't hear it. So luckily. The clerk, um, a man called Stephen Todd Hunter, works at Westminster Mags, which is where I'm often at, and he's super lovely. Um, so we all we had to do was really explain to him that you know we we need somebody in the courtroom, even though there's all these COVID restrictions, so that if there is an outburst, we can report it. And I suppose it's not just hearing it as well; it's uh, being able to see it. It's, it's the reactions we're interested in. Exactly, that's so important um, to see, and especially somebody as um, dynamic and dramatic as Assange makes for great copy. Um, okay, so people have said repeatedly that this is not a case that is just about Assange. It's an attack on, you know, the fundamental tenets of media freedom, if you like. Um, so is that a fair assessment? I think that is a fair assessment, or it's certainly a fair thing to keep in mind during the trial, because Obama, it was often said to the reason he didn't go after Assange is because he'd have to also go after the New York Times because Assange worked with the New York Times, the Guardian, Der Spiegel, Le Monde to release all of this, all of this stuff. So if you charge Assange with these crimes, you kind of have to charge the papers too, or at least it opens the door to being able to charge the media with the same crimes. Obviously, Trump cares slightly less about charging the, the media. That's one, one of the reasons why uh, Team Assange claimed it was political interference, because Trump was happy to charge him and Obama wasn't. So the claims that the charges filed against Assange are politically motivated under the Trump administration, can that defence still be used after the US election? It's super interesting, actually, because so one of Assange's main claims is that as Trump and his attorney general, a man called Bill Barr, they were after him politically. But then again, they kind of had to make that argument because the US and the UK, we've got an extradition treaty, right? So we send people over to the US and they send people from the US to the UK. What that extradition treaty doesn't cover is political crimes. So they were pointing to alleged interference by Team Trump. In fairness, there was quite a lot of interference to choose from. So, you know, Trump went from, in the 2016 campaign, I love WikiLeaks. And then after he won the election, he went, oh, I know nothing about WikiLeaks. And then a couple of years later, it was, oh, Julian Assange is really dangerous and actually, you know, should be put to death in the death penalty for his crimes. Um, he claimed that Assange's whole defence was a plot by Democrats. Uh, the US turned the head of security at the Ecuadorian embassy to spy on Assange. There was a Republican congressman who visited uh, Assange in the embassy and he said that Trump 
had given him permission to offer Assange a pardon on behalf of him if he said that Russia wasn't the source of the 2016 election leaks. There was also the fact that the US case kept springing indictment after indictment with weeks and sometimes even days to go until the trial of new charges or expanding old charges. And this is just something you can't do in a criminal court because you need time for everybody to have a defence against what's going to come up. But basically the judge didn't have the power to stop it so it happened so there's there's a lot to pick from if you were going to argue that it's political interference but then again they had to argue it was political interference so that was one of the main tenants onto the election what does that change it's actually not great for assange because on the one hand a biden presidency might be more um, minded to give him a pardon because you know obama pardoned chelsea manning after a few years and know biden's very much part of the uh, Obama uh, ideology but also it takes away one of the main reasons against extraditing him which is that it's political motivation he can't now claim that Biden's politically motivated by trying to extradite him so it's you know it, it sort of weakens his case quite significantly. So what happens if Assange loses the case? So if he loses this case, which is at the Old Bailey, he will, whoever loses, either if he loses or the US, they will both appeal and it'll then go to the High Court. Now, whoever loses at the High Court will then appeal and it'll go to the Supreme Court. So this is in no way over at all. But if he loses at the Supreme Court and he is extradited, he'll first of all be taken to somewhere called ADX Florence, which is a high security prison in the Colorado desert. His other inmates will include Abu Hamza, remember him uh, el chapo there's a 9-11 terrorist thrown in there so all quite big deal stuff and he'll be placed under these things called special administrative measures or sams and there's only about 40 other inmates in the entire u.s prison population who are under sams and it's it's bad you get one half an hour phone call a month with either lawyer or family members with fbi listening in you've got absolutely no privacy you've got complete solitary confinement and he could face 175 years in prison which is just obscene to any any of us who watch uk courts which is just unheard of you know we don't do consecutive sentencing like they do we no. do concurrent sentencing so we'll do two charges of 20 years but you, they serve them out at the same time they're you know in america you can get hundreds and hundreds of years but i will also say it is a maximum sentence it's a headline you know chelsea manning could have faced 136 years and she ended up getting 35 so we have to put it in context he's not definitely going to get 175 years but it's not impossible and that's quite scary and at the moment assange is being held at belmarsh a high security category a men's prison tough conditions but not compared to what he could be facing if extradited it's interesting yeah i think the general thought is that the u.s prison system is much harder under covid I think it is pretty bad at Belmarsh and they are under quite a lot of isolation and all this sort of similar things. But it's obviously because of Covid, it's not just as a sort of punishment. But so Assange's whole thing is that all of these measures and all these special administrative measures means that he will be at a much higher risk of suicide. But the interesting claim that the US made against that, which really took me for surprise, was that actually the suicide rate is much higher in English and Welsh prisons than it is an American. Hmm, that's interesting. And for those following this closely, what date should we put in our diary? When When's Judgment Day for Assange? So 4th of January is when District Judge Vanessa Baretza will make her ruling on whether he should be extradited or not. Well, if you had to place a bet on who is going to win, who would it be? I, I think he'll probably lose this one, 
But I'd say it was probably 50-50 whether he actually will end up going. I'd probably say, if I, ha- if I had to place a bet on it, I'd probably say it'll get to the Supreme Court and he won't end up being extradited. And that's it for this episode. This is Trial by Media. You've heard from Charlie Jones, Sophia Deru, and Cameron Charters. Next episode, we'll be focusing on sex, passion and love murders. Make sure you hit subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. I'm your host for this episode, Carolina Haranskar. See you next time.